Genesis chapter 4. The book of Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. If you don't have a Bible with you, please take one out of the seats in front of you. Uh, You'll find our passage on page 3. I was telling someone earlier that there are missionaries in town from South America, and they said one of the hardest things to get used to here in America was the fact that when we come to worship here in America, once it gets around noon, people are ready to go. And he said there, you know, people come to worship. It's a whole day thing. You just come and you sit and you hang around and you, you worship all day. And he said it's just so hard to get used to. And for me, I've already cut this sermon in half to try and fit it into this service. I may have to talk really fast. So if so, turn your brains on um, so, that, so that you can be ready to, to take in all of this. This is so important, talking about how we worship. And so I hope that you will be engaged in this. Uh, listening to the sermon is an act of worship. And uh, so I hope that you will worship well uh, as we go through this. The, the hardest thing for me is, is cutting out and choosing what not to say in order to squeeze it in. So we'll, we'll do what we can. Genesis 4, verses 1 through 7. If you would, stand with me, if you're physically able, and let's read from Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. This is God's word. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. You may be seated. We are talking about worship. We are talking particularly about our worship together, our Lord's Day worship. We began looking at this passage last Sunday night, and there I shared that it is my understanding, it is my contention, that what we have here in Genesis 4, verses 1 through 7, is the first recorded example in Scripture of Lord's Day worship, of Sabbath Day worship. And this passage has implications for our Sabbath day worship. This passage, these seven verses, have implications. They teach us truths that we need to know for the way we worship God in our times together on Sunday mornings. But none of what I'm going to say this morning, none of what I'm going to say next week and perhaps the following Sunday is going to matter, is going to have any significance for us unless we first care about our worship together. In other words, if you're sitting here and I'm saying we're going to preach on worship and your, your heart is immediately thinking, oh, well, that's not a good start. You have to care about worship in order for you to care about what God says about our worship. And so I need to begin this morning by doing what I can to convey to you how utterly important our worship on Sundays 
really is. The truth of the matter is that if you do not have the right theology in place, there is a good chance that our Sunday worship together will not seem very important to you. If you have not been brought by the Spirit of God to believe what the Bible says about what we're doing here this morning, this may not feel very important to you. And so I want to give you a biblical perspective on worship. I want to give a rather long introduction here about why our worship really does matter. The Lord's Day comes every seven days. We have these services 52 days a year. Week after week after week, we gather for worship. And if we are not careful if we do not regularly remind ourselves of what we're doing here, why we come together, why our worship is important, if we don't remind ourselves of that, this can become routine. This can become empty. This can become meaningless and vain. I don't want our time together to be like that, and so we need to be freshly reminded of what we're doing here on Sunday morning when we could be out fishing or golfing or watching TV. Why is this time together important? It is important because it is on this day that we join with millions of brothers and sisters in Christ in proclaiming God's worth throughout the entire earth. On this day, we as Christians add our voices to the chorus of God's worshipers in every nation on this globe. The Bible speaks of a day when all the earth will sing praises to God and that is being fulfilled in our own time, at least partially. The kingdom of Jesus Christ is expanding to every tongue, to every tribe, to every nation. God's people are being saved. And every Lord's Day, in the midst of all the wickedness of the world, In the midst of all the tragedy in the world, every Lord's Day, God's holy remnant, God's people, His church, come together in their various meeting places and with one voice, the church of God proclaims the glory of Him and His gospel. We're a part of that. That's part of what we're doing here. God's glory being declared and celebrated throughout the earth. That's what we're to be doing here on this little corner in Rocky Mount. Second, this time is important. Our worship is important because it is through our worship that we come to understand who God is. It is through our worship that our vision of God is shaped. Do you remember what I asked you last Sunday night? I want to flesh this out a little more than I did then. I asked you to imagine an unbeliever coming into our worship service. Or just coming into any worship service. Imagine an unbeliever walking into a church worship service. What does it say to that unbeliever if all the songs being sung are trite little praise choruses that just repeat the same words over and over, void of any real truth, all geared towards getting people to to feel something? What vision of God will that unbeliever leave with? Will he leave 
having learned that God is some kind of a tool to help us reach some sort of spiritual high, some kind of emotional mood? Or what if it goes into a very different church? What if it goes to a church where the congregation is singing glorious songs about the attributes of God, but they're singing them half-heartedly, as if they can't wait for the songs to be over with? What vision of God will that unbeliever live with? Perhaps a vision of a God who is really not so glorious after all. Or what does it say to an unbeliever if he walks or she walks into a church and the sermon is only 15 minutes long and it includes two jokes and a sappy story and there's no real grappling with God's truth, there's no striving to understand the Bible, no striving to understand its implications... How is that person going to leave? Won't that person leave with a a vision that God's word is not really all that important? Won't that person leave with an idea that God's word is not worthy of serious attention and study? Because if God's people on the Lord's day don't think it's worthy of serious attention and study, why should I think it's worthy of that at home? What if the prayers are short and insincere and the whole service is characterized by a lack of seriousness Or worse, by a sense that we're just doing some duty so that we can get on with our lives. Will an unbeliever who attends a service like that leave trembling before an almighty God, awestruck by the God he's just encountered, overcome by a holy fear that will lead to repentance? Almost certainly not. But... What about when the worship is serious? What about when an unbeliever comes into a church where the worship is joyful and serious? What about when it is clear that the church is being careful to worship well? What does it say when the congregation, with as much smiles on their faces as they can muster, are singing heartily, loudly, eagerly, declaring through song great and mighty truths about their God? What does it say when men come up to this pulpit to pray and their prayers are filled with contrition and repentance and adoration and a pleading for God to bless and draw near? What does it say when the sermon is substantial, filled with truth and and an impressing of that truth on our lives as if it matters, as if our souls are at stake? Won't that person leave at least thinking, this is a God to be reckoned with? This is a God that I need to consider. You see, what the world out there thinks about when they think about God will be shaped by what they see going on in here. Your worship is a witness. And people's visions of God are shaped by the way we worship. But that's not all we said last Sunday night, is it? We said not only are unbelievers who come among us going to have their vision of God shaped by our worship, but we have our own vision of God shaped by what we do here. You can't do something 52 times or 104 times a year and not have it shape you and have it not affect you. How we worship each Sunday will affect our own spiritual growth. It will affect our faith. It will affect our view of God. If we take God lightly on Sundays, 
Aren't we going to take Him lightly on Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays? If we are not careful to reverence God, to obey Him faithfully and joyfully on Sundays in our worship, are we going to be careful to reverence Him and obey Him the rest of the week? If the way we worship on Sundays says that this is a God to be trifled with, this is a God not to be feared, this is a God that we can just play around with, we can come and and play church and act like we're doing something and leave on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday when the temptations come, is there going to be a fear of God in your heart that will keep you from that sin? Probably not. Friends, what we're doing here matters. It is important for your soul. Your vision of God is being shaped this very moment. Another way of getting at this point is just to remind us that it is through our worship that Christ sanctifies us. This isn't the only way that God is making us holy, but this is one of the chief ways that God is making us holy. This is one of the chief ways that Christ is maturing us, that Christ is growing us up. He uses these services as means of grace to bless us and teach us and train us. Our Lord's Day services have a high concentration of means of grace. The singing, the preaching, the prayers, the reading of Scripture, the offering. It's it's 60 minutes, 70 minutes, sometimes 80 minutes, I know, of, of many different means of grace all packed together into a highly concentrated form that Christ is using to wash you, to cleanse you, to make His people fit for heaven. Of course... If we use these means of grace inappropriately, we are not blessed by them as God intends. If you give a child a pencil to write with, but the child, instead of using the pencil to write with, uses the pencil to pick food out of his teeth, he doesn't get the benefit of the pencil. In fact, he might do himself some harm, especially if he starts swallowing the lead. Well, in the same way, God has given us all these means of grace. He says, I want you to sing truth to one another. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to put my word in your hearts. I want you to read my holy word in the presence of the people. I want you to expound on it. I want you to pray to me with all your heart. He gives us all of these tools that He uses not only for His glory and for our good, but for our good. But if we misuse them, if if we're like the kid using the pencil wrongly, We miss the blessing. Preaching can be a wonderful means of grace when God's Word is preached clearly and accurately, but it can do so much damage when it is misused. Our singing is a great tool that God can use to put His truth deep into our hearts, but if you don't sing songs filled with truth, you waste the whole point of singing. We can sing all day about Don't be offended. We can sing all day about imaginary churches in the wildwood, and it's not going to do us a hill of beans of good. The point of singing is to impress truth into our hearts, and we can easily waste that. We can waste the times of prayer, we can waste the offering. We can waste everything we're doing here if we don't do it well, if we don't do it the way God has intended. 
Now, if you've been following me so far, what I've said is that worship matters because one, it matters for His glory as we join with the church around the world and declaring His glory in this dark world. It matters for our spiritual growth. It matters for our vision of God. And if you've gotten all that, you should also be able to see that this worship matters because it is the, one of the chief ways that you and I love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. You can't love anyone any better than by pointing them to Jesus. Well, what are we doing when we gather here? What are we doing when we read the Scripture together, pray together, and sing eagerly to one another? We're pointing each other to Christ. There is nothing that's going to encourage me more to worship well than to look around and see all my brothers and sisters that I love doing the same thing. You see, your attendance here is an encouragement to your brothers and sisters to worship well. And your eager participation in worship, not as spectators, but participants, is an act of love to your brothers and sisters in Christ. All right. Let me remind you where we are. We're looking at Cain and Abel. We have a contrast between two brothers One offered an offering that God regarded. Isn't that what it says about Abel's offering? God had regard for Abel's offering. But for Cain's offering, God did not have regard. This is a contrast between acceptable worship and unacceptable worship. This passage teaches very clearly, a child can see it, that there is a kind of worship that is pleasing to God and there is a kind of worship that is not pleasing to God. This is no minor point in the Bible. Last week we saw that this theme runs throughout the Scriptures. We saw that four of the Ten Commandments are about how we are to worship God. We saw how Israel tried to worship God inappropriately through a golden calf and God ultimately struck down 3,000 of them. We saw how Aaron's sons were killed for worshiping God carelessly. We heard the command of God in Deuteronomy 12, 32. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add or take away from it. We talked about how Jesus rebuked the religious leaders because they had added to the worship of God these man-made concoctions and man-made traditions. We looked at much more than that. But last Sunday night's point was very clear. God cares about how we worship Him. And if God cares about His worship, shouldn't you? Do you? If not, get up and leave. The rest of the sermon doesn't matter. But if God's heart is your heart, if you see that worship is integral to God's work in your life and the life of your brothers and sisters, We need to hear this. We need to learn what God teaches us about worship. So here's where we are. If we want to be Abel's and not Cain's, if we want to worship God in a way that is pleasing Him, we need to figure out for our day what is the kind of worship that pleases God and blesses His people. Now the rest of this sermon is just one point. It's so easy, it's so obvious, and so overlooked. Here's the point. 
If we want to know what kind of worship is true, genuine worship that pleases God, we should look to God. Isn't that easy? Isn't that obvious? If you want to know what kind of worship God loves, go to God and find out. That's the point of this message this morning. We shouldn't poll the congregation and ask what kind of worship we enjoy most. We should not look to the traditions of our past and say, what have we done before? We should not look around at other, all the churches around us and say, what are they doing? And try and take that. Rather, if our worship is to be meaningful, acceptable, God-honoring, people-sanctifying, if our worship is to be true worship in God's sight, then let us go to God and ask, God, what is true worship? Now, it's kind of silly that we have to spend time on this, but our culture demands it. But isn't it true that Christians should look to God in everything? Isn't that true? I mean, shouldn't we, shouldn't we look to God to see how, to, how we ought to live before our families, how we ought to live before our friends, how we ought to live in our workplaces? Shouldn't we look to God to know how to handle our possessions and our money and our time? Shouldn't we look to God to give us wisdom and instruction for every aspect of our lives? So certainly the worship of God is no different. God is so wise. He's so much smarter than we are. and He he knows what is best so much better than we do. What fools we are if we don't go to God and say, God, teach us. We want to know what's real worship. And yet if we got on a bus right now and began touring many of the churches in our own area, we would find that so many of them filled with true believers who mean well seem never to have taken the time to ask, what does God say is true worship? I want to set us on the right path, the path of Abel. The rest of this sermon is just several reasons to reinforce in your mind and your heart why we should look to God instead of ourselves to know what true worship is. Number one, there's the nature of God. God is transcendent and God is infinite. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Isaiah 55, 9. Church, we must never presume to have God figured out. Did you hear me? We must never think that we have come to the point where we've got God down. We know Him. We know what pleases Him. We know what He desires. We don't need to look to His Word. We don't need to go to Him and ask His opinion. We understand God. No. He's higher than us. We understand God with the little capacity that we are able, like ants seeking to understand you. Rather, the only way we can know true and false worship is not by thinking that we have God figured out, but by going to God and saying, God, would you please reveal to us? Would you tell our puny little minds who want to love you, who want to worship you well, would you give us truth about how we are to worship you? And we're so grateful that He has right here in His Word. The wisdom of God, the knowledge of God, the goodness of God all teach us that He is infinitely more qualified than us to speak to this matter. Here's a question for you. If you had to choose between a cow, a three-year-old, and a rocket scientist, 
Who would you go to ask to explain to you differential equations? Would you go to the cow? Would you go to the three-year-old? You would go to the one most qualified. Well, when it comes to what we do here on Sundays, when it comes to our worship, if we want to know, I'm trying not to yell, if we want to know what real worship is, who is most qualified to answer that question? Is it not God? Second, there is the nature of man. If we know ourselves, and I hope you know yourself, if we know ourselves, we know that it is actually dangerous Dangerous for us to look to ourselves to determine what true worship is. For although we've been born again, and although we have a new heart that desires to do right, there is still sin in us. There are still those pesky remnants of self-centeredness and selfishness. And what this means is that if we look to ourselves to determine what worship is, we might come out with something that really pleases us, but does not please God. Our sinful hearts, our sinful minds may take us down wrong paths and our worship may end up more about us than about Him. Church, listen to what I'm about to say. Mark it down. If we have a worship service that people love so that thousands of people flock to Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church to enjoy the worship service, but God is not pleased, we have failed. I wonder if you'll agree with that. If we get this, if we understand that worship is about God, we will become very counter-cultural. Our church will not fit in. We won't. So much worship today is about making people feel good about themselves. So many worship services are trite and glib with superficially happy people all smiling at each other and enjoying the show. But there's no reverence, there's no fear, there's no respect for a holy God. And people do not leave those worship services the way you leave the Grand Canyon, the way you leave Niagara Falls with your jaw dropped, with your heart full because you've seen something amazing. That's what our worship services ought to convey. I pray that that we're conveying this right now. That this God matters. That He's weighty. That He's important. I have come to believe, you see if you agree, that more and more in our culture, people, including many who call themselves Christians, find that the worship that God requires is a worship that sounds tedious to them. Prayers, sermons, hymns, boring. Where's the pizzazz? And so the question here is this. Do we trust God enough to believe that worshiping His way will ultimately be better for us in the long run than worshiping in our own man-made ways. Do we trust God on this issue? 
A third reason we should look to God to know what is true worship is the nature of faith. We are to live our lives in faith. We're to wake up each morning with faith that God's mercies will sustain us. Every moment of our lives are to be lived in dependence upon us. But what does it mean to worship in faith? And we have to worship in faith because Romans 14.23, whatever is not from faith is sin. So if we want our, our, our worship to be real, if we want our worship to be acceptable, we have to know what it means to worship in faith. And that means worshiping in a way that is trusting God. And that means worshiping in a way where you're trusting what God says. So if we worship in our own man-made, concocted ways, we're trusting in ourselves. We're saying we think that our way will sanctify us. Our way will bless God. Our way is surely good enough. But we're called to trust God. To humbly kneel before Him and to say, God, Your ways are right. Your ways are best. We depend on You to tell us what kind of worship is going to ultimately be best for us in the end. Do we worship in faith? If so, we will worship according to His Word. Fourth reason. I'm skipping so much to get this in. A fourth reason to look to God to learn what is and isn't acceptable is the nature of the church. The nature of God, the nature of man, the nature of faith, now the nature of the church. To put it very simply, see how you hear this, as a part of Christ's church, We have no right to worship Him in any other way than He has commanded. Say that again. As Christ's church, we have no right to worship in any other way than Christ has commanded. Why? Because it's Christ's church. He bought us, didn't He? We belong to Him. He is the head of the church. I'm not the head of the church. You're not the head of the church. We together as a congregation are not the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. We don't give the orders around here. Jesus does through His Word. And He's so good. He's a great shepherd. He's the the faithful teacher, the noble king, the mighty captain. He's worthy of our trust. And He is the one on whom God has given the authority to declare right and wrong, to declare what is good and what is evil, and to declare what is true worship and what is false worship. Let me mention one last reason why we should look to God to learn what is and isn't acceptable worship. It's the nature of love. True love. Do we love God or don't we? Love for God means that we will be careful to do all we can to please Him. Imagine you want to give a gift to someone to express your love to them. What do you look for? Do you look for something you like or do you look for something they like? 
And as you're trying to choose this gift for the person you love, isn't it true that the more thought you put into it, the more time of consideration of what to give, that, that shows that you really love this person, right? You're careful about the gift. You want the gift to be right. You want it to bring, to bring a smile to their face. Well, it's the same with God. If we really love God, we will want to bring Him worship that, that brings His heart joy. Listen very carefully to this, please. Even more than the acts of worship themselves, God is pleased when we are careful to obey Him thoroughly. Listen to what I just said. What I'm saying is that it's the thought that counts. That when God looks at you, you may have a terrible voice. You may not even like singing. But when God sees that it's in your heart a desire to obey that brings you to sing. He's not pleased because of how good or bad your voice sounds. He's pleased because there's this child who loves him and respects him enough to obey even when it's hard. It's the heart of the matter that's the issue. Samuel came to Saul and said to obey is better than sacrifice. Saul, the sacrifice was important, but what really mattered to God was whether you were going to do it right because that shows whether you really love him or not. True love says that if we're going to worship, we'll go to God and say, God, how can we worship You well? Because we want to please You. Bring your attention back to Cain and Abel. Why was Cain's worship unacceptable? It seems very clear to me that God must have revealed to Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, how he wanted to be worshipped by them before Genesis 4. Because God says in verses 6 and 7, why are, your ang- why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? In other words, Cain, your sin was not a sin of ignorance. It's not that you really wanted me to worship, you really wanted to worship me well, but you just didn't know how. No, Cain, you know what it is to worship well, and you've chosen not to. In other words, God had already revealed to them previously how He wanted to be worshipped. And, and I, think, I think the issue was first fruits. I think the issue was, I want you to bring your best. Abel brought his best. The firstborn of the flock, the fat portions. Cain, rather than worshipping as God had revealed, tried to worship with whatever he could get away with. His worship was unacceptable. Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church. Let us not be like Cain. Let us be like Abel. Let us turn to God and learn what acceptable worship is and let us worship accordingly. It's time to go. Let me close. I want to point us to Christ. And I want to be clear about something. We do not seek to worship well in order to be saved by God. We seek to worship well because we've already been saved by God. We are not, are not, are not earning God's grace by seeking to worship well. 
we seek to worship well because he's already given his grace to us. Do you see the crucial difference? Every other religion in the world says you have to work to have the favor of your God. Christianity says, Christianity is more pessimistic and more optimistic. Christianity is more pessimistic in that it says you will never be able to please your God on your own. You're too sinful. But it's more optimistic. It says you don't have to. God has provided Christ to satisfy God in your place. Christianity says that God forgives us of our sins and makes us His children and lavishes us with blessings and He does all this as an act of grace. Jesus earned God's grace for us. We receive it as a free gift. Grace, G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. This is love. God so loved us that He sent His only Son to come and to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. We were great sinners. God has provided for us a great Savior. All who will acknowledge that they need Jesus Christ and cast themselves upon Him for salvation will be reconciled to God. We do not worship in order to gain God's favor. He's already given it to us by grace. Not because of who we are, but because of who He is. And so once we've come to know and rest in His unshakable love for us, our hearts should respond with love back to Him. And if our hearts are responding to His grace with love back to Him, one expression of that should be a carefulness to worship Him in a way that brings Him joy. So we do not worship to earn God's grace. We worship because we've already received it. Three questions to close. I'm just reading them, not anything else. One, have you come to know and rest in the unshakable love of God? Have you received Christ? Are you living in the love of God for you in Jesus Christ? Two, if you are, is your heart responding to His love? with love in return. Love for the Father, love for the Son, love for the Spirit, love for His Word, love for all that He's given you. Is your heart responding in love to God? And if it is, question number three, are you expressing that love by being careful to worship God well? That's the issue. Whatever your answer, pray. Pray that God would let you rest more in His love. Pray that He would give you more love towards Him. And pray that one expression of that love would be a desire to worship Him well.